0: I came across a letter uh, that appeared in Ann Lander's column a few years uh, ago. I'd like to read it to you. I used to do the dishes until I watched my wife get up and rinse them again and stack them the right way. I used to put the dishes away. Then I would watch my wife pull everything out of the cupboard and put them away properly. I used to put the groceries away. The next time I opened the refrigerator, the groceries would all be back where they belonged. Every time I put a cup down, she washes it, whether I'm through with it or not. If I make a sandwich, she stands next to me. I cut the tomato, and she wipes the juice. Finally, I got sick of staying home at nights. I go out by myself to movies and concerts. My wife stays home and dusts the ceilings and washes the walls. Her parents let me know what a holy, hard-working woman she is. My preacher tells me her price is better than rubies. I ask her to go with me for counsel, but she says it's my problem, not hers. Nobody understands what it's like to live like this uh, but me and the dog. She puts Clorox in his dish. <laughs> and we laugh, but there's something really very tragic about that, uh, about that letter, because here is a dear woman trying desperately to, to do what she thinks is right, and she's getting it all wrong. She's destroying the relationship that she probably is seeking more than, than anything else in the world. And when I read this letter, it reminded me that so often this is the way we approach the Christian life. We're so compulsive in our efforts to try to do things for our Lord. We work so hard. We hustle and we hope to do more, but in the end we... Uh, we feel so so unhappy and so unrestful. We know things aren't right. We don't understand what's wrong. We just know that something is wrong. If that's the way we're approaching the Christian life, and we don't understand Jesus' words when he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm meek and, and lowly in heart. If the Christian life is crushing you, if it's a burden that you cannot bear, then you're not carrying Jesus' yoke. I don't know whose yoke it is, but it's not his. God has always been concerned about our work habits, and that's why he instituted a Sabbath. Now, to give you a little bit of background on the passage that we want to talk about this morning, I'd like to have you turn to the book of Exodus first. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to cheat. I don't uh, have to turn to Exodus. I have it all written here in the front of my New Testament. But it's Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. This is the Sabbath commandment. You'll recognize it as we uh, read through the ten words or the ten commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is that you will not make any idols. The third is that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth commandment reads this way. Remember the Sabbath day to, by keeping it holy. The word holy, as I've said over and over again, means special, unique. The Sabbath day was a day unlike any other day. In what way was it unlike other days? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the Sabbath day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now I want you to read that commandment carefully because the command is not to worship on the Sabbath day, it's to not work. The Sabbath was not made for the worshiping man or woman. The Sabbath was made for the working stiff, like you and me. Israel worshiped every day. The Sabbath was not a special day set aside to worship. It was a special day to stop working. It applied, uh, as Moses tells us, to you and your son or daughter. Uh, If you lived in Israel, your son could not mow the lawn on Saturday. Nor your manservant, or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the aliens within your gate. No one could work. You couldn't even work your animals on the Sabbath, which in Israel's time was Saturday. Four, and here is the explanation for the Sabbath. This is why the Lord instituted it. In six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it special. Here's why the Sabbath day is a special day. Because on six days God worked, and on the seventh day he stopped working. Why? Because there was nothing else to do. Everything had been done. That God intended to do. He had created every molecule. He had put all of the energy into the universe that uh, would keep it running. Uh, there was no more creating to be done. And so he sat back, and as Genesis tells us, he said, it's very good. And in certain contexts, that word good has the idea of beautiful. And I think uh, that's what he's talking about in terms of creation. Ah, oh, he said, isn't that beautiful? Look what I've done. And then he rested. Now that commandment was binding on Israel. Fourth commandment, right? Tucked right in there in the midst of all these other very, very important commands. Israel was not to work on the Sabbath even when you would think a person had to work. A bit later in Exodus 34, if you want to turn to that passage, Exodus 34, 21, Moses commands. Six days of labor, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the ploughing season and harvest, you must rest. So when when everyone thought that they ought to get up and get going, God said, No, you, you have to you have to sit down and, and rest. You have to knock off, you have to take a day off. You're not permitted to work on Saturdays, even during harvest season, when most people would work seven days a week. 12 to 15 hours a day in order to get their crops in before the rains fell. God said, no, you're supposed to take a day off. God was very serious about this command. As a matter of fact, the Sabbath command uh, was an obligation. Sabbath breaking was a capital offense. Uh, Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 15. I'm just giving you background to Hebrews 4. Just stay with me for a moment. Numbers, chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. I referred to this uh, this Old Testament text a few weeks ago. This is the passage that talks about intentional and unintentional sin. And I pointed out that unintentional sin is not sin that one stumbles into. Unintentional sin is sin that, the kind of sin that we all fall into for which there was an atonement if a, If a Jewish man or woman sinned any sin, he could go and receive forgiveness. And it's distinguished in this chapter between those sins and sins with a high hand, that is, sins of treason and rebellion. This is the Jewish man or woman who would not accept forgiveness, who turned his back on God and and walked away. Uh, Verse 30, anyone who sins defiantly uh, with a high hand... Whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. And then as an illustration of a high-handed sin, he cites the example of a man who went out to uh, gather sticks on the Sabbath. Note verse 32. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. This was the first time they'd encountered this sort of thing. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death. So the Lord commanded Moses. And we say, That's just what I thought. The Lord is some kind of a hard guy. I mean, my goodness, this dear man went out to pick up a few sticks, and he's taken out and he's stoned for this offense. What kind of God is this? Well, the Hebrew text makes it very clear that this is one of those high-handed, defiant sins. This man said, I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. And he went out repeatedly, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, and gathered up sticks. And God says, this is a very serious offense. This is so serious that it involves taking the life of the individual. In other words, God takes the Sabbath very Seriously. Very seriously. Now Israel not only had uh, a Sabbath every week, they had a whole series of of Sabbaths. Every 7th year was a Sabbath. There were other Sabbaths that were specified in their in their calendar because God was trying to get something across to Israel in symbol. The important thing he wanted to say is that you must learn to rest. You must learn to rest. Now. Uh, today we don't observe the Sabbath. The o- these Old Testament laws have all been done away with. As I understand. The New Covenant. The New Testament. Explains all of the Old Testament for us. Some Old Testament laws are totally done away with. The dietary laws for example are rescinded. Some commands are Restated. Some of the commands in the Old Testament are turned into reality. In other words, the commands in the Old Testament were just shadows of some greater reality. And, and, and the Sabbath falls into that category. The, the, the Sabbath was a symbol of some some greater rest that God had in mind. And in the New Testament, we come into the, 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 the full awareness of what that Sabbath-keeping law is. And it's that that Hebrews 4... Is describing now. Let's let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter four, and let me read the first eleven verses of that chapter. Uh, I should say, just in case some of you might be confused, the early church, from the resurrection of Christ on, celebrated the Lord's Day as the day on which they worship, the day of His resurrection. That's clear from the book of Acts. In Acts twenty, we're told that the church gathered on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And from the writings of the generation that preceded the apostles, we have a number of of pieces of uh, letters and other correspondence and uh, material written by the church fathers, those that came right after the apostles, people like Justin Martyr and the Epistle of Barnabas and others that indicate that the church began to worship on the first day of the week. But the Day that the church worshipped is not the same as the Old Testament Sabbath. And Hebrews 4 makes that very clear. Sunday is not the Sabbath. There's another Sabbath that we have entered into. And it's that that the writer describes for us here in, in Hebrews 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... It's still open to us. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Literally, we should be afraid. It's a very serious thing not to enter into rest. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. The they refers to the Israelites who came to Kadesh and who refused to enter into the land of Canaan. They had the good news preached to them that God was going to fight for them that God had already given them, everything that he had promised to give them. They came to Kadesh Barnea, you know the story, they came out of Egypt, we've talked about this uh, pilgrimage that Israel took through the wilderness for the last two weeks, they came out of Egypt, made their way across the Sinai, down to Mount Sinai, received their constitution that bound them together, made their way north through the wilderness up to the oasis of Kadesh Barnea, and it was there that God called them to go into the land, the Twelve spies went in to, uh, to reconnoiter and they came back. Ten gave an evil report. They said that we, we can't take the land. There are giants there. Two, Caleb and Joshua gave a positive report. God has given us the land. Moses had, uh, had already anticipated this event in the book of Deuteronomy. He told them that God has a resting place for them. It's, he uses that term, God is going to give you a resting place, which is the land of Canaan. God had already given them that land. He said, go in and take it because it's yours. It's a gift. The Canaanites were already in fear of, of the Israelites. It was a simple matter to step across the, the, the border into the land of Canaan and, and, and take what God had already given to them. That was the good news. This is your land. It's been given to you by a gift. Come in and, and take it. But, but they turned back. Right of Hebrews says, We have had the gospel preached to us, too. That rest of Canaan has been translated into our rest in Christ, the rest of a finished, accomplished, complete salvation. We, we have had the good news preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it, Didn't combine it with faith. The the news was good. Uh, The word was true. God has given you the land. But they didn't respond to that word with faith. They didn't believe it. And so uh, the word was of no value to them. But, verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The quote confirms that the rest is only available to those who believe. Some did not believe and their bodies littered the the wilderness. Some believed and they went into the land. His work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day... God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. Now, it's not completely clear at first reading what the writer is is talking about. But I think this is what he's saying. He's linking together the two rests. There is the Sabbath rest from creation that we talked about earlier. God created, finished the work. He did everything that was to be done. And then he rested. There was nothing more to be done. God gave Israel the land of rest, and he told them it was a gift to you. You can go into the land and take it. All you have to do is take that first step, and it's yours. You're fighting a battle that's already won. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is linking together these two symbolic ideas of rest with the ultimate rest of salvation that's ours. And in effect, uh, the author's saying to us, enter in. Enter into that rest. The reality of rest is yours. You can know a complete, satisfying, eternal salvation. All you have to do is is believe it. Just accept it. And it's yours. In verse 6, it still remains that some will enter that rest. Those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, the two rests in the Old Testament, the rest of the Sabbath, and the rest of the land of Canaan did not exhaust the ultimate meaning of rest. There still remains a rest. And as I mentioned last week, uh, 500 years after Israel entered the land of Canaan and took up residence there, and they began to rest in the land, David said in Psalm 95, there's still more coming. This isn't all there is. This is simply a symbolic. Uh, this is a picture of the greater rest that God is giving to us, the rest of of salvation. That rest remains today, he says. Enter in. They, those that perished at, at Kadesh, they didn't enter in. They hardened their hearts. They were unwilling to take that step of faith. They were afraid of the giants. They were afraid of the Canaanites. They were afraid they wouldn't have enough food. They were afraid they wouldn't have enough water. They, they, they did not believe in God's gracious, loving provision for them. They thought they had to do something else. Now, the writer says, don't, don't you be like that. You enter in. You take that step of faith. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, and this is the bottom line, anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now, this is his point. It's very simple. Salvation is a gift, our sanctification is a gift, our service for God is a gift. Salvation is a given. Sanctification is a given. Our service and the effectiveness that we have in that service is a given. We're doing tasks that are already done. We're entering into a salvation that's already won. We're fighting a battle that's already won. You see, everything that God wants us to have, He's already done for us. All we have to do is enter in. There is nothing more that we can do. All we have to do to enter in is to enter in by faith. Now, um, you see, this is where most of us go astray. There's got to be something that we have to do. We have to add something to this, this thing that God has done for us. We have to be baptized. Or we have to be circumcised. Or we have to be Simonized. Or something has to happen to us a little bit more than God has done for us. And we say, no... It is by grace that you are saved through faith. It's a gift. When our Lord died on the cross, he said, It is finished. There's nothing more to be added. The same is true of our sanctification. How do you grow? How do you change? How do you become more like Christ? That's a given. One of these days we're going to stand before our Lord and we're going to be just exactly as he is in character. He who has begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Now resting doesn't mean rusting. We don't uh, just sit around and wait for things to happen. We, we choose, we will, we have to strive at times, we have to struggle against sin. But it, the, the important thing is the attitude with which we work. The attitude with which we serve, the attitude with which we approach our growth in Christ, underneath of the everlasting arms. We're counting on God to save us in the past, or we did count on Him to save us if we've entered into His rest. We're counting on Him to keep that process of salvation going. We're counting on Him to change our character and make us more and more like Him. We count on Him to use us to touch the lives of other people significantly. We walk into every situation saying, Lord, I don't have anything to say. I don't know how to, how to influence these people. I don't have any power. All I can do is rest in your ability to work in and through me to change someone else's life. And when we do that, when we begin to count on him, there is, there is a, a, a flow out from us of the spirit that significantly touches the lives of others. Now, I have a kind of a corny illustration that I use to illustrate this principle, and I've used it once before a couple of years ago, so forgive me for using it again, but I I thought and thought and thought this week, trying to come up with a better illustration, and I couldn't. I've changed it a little bit, but the uh, form of it is basically the same. Uh, Carolyn and I were uh, watching a program the other day about—I've uh, forgotten what—Bush pilots or something. I, I just said, "Why? You know, I've always wanted to learn how to fly." She said, "You have?" And I said, "Yeah, I really have. I'd love to learn how to fly. Love to fly with my friends in the back country and land these little strips, and that's really exciting." I've never been able to do it for various reasons. Uh, but let's suppose that I—I uh, I actually get the opportunity to learn how to fly. My friend John Barnes is going to teach me how to fly. So we uh, we go out to the airport, and uh, John has his plane sitting there at the end of the runway, and he says, All right, get in. Get over on the right-hand side, and I'll sit over here on the left, and I'll show you how to fly. So I get in there, and and he straps me in, and, uh, and uh, then he, uh, you know, whatever they do on the microphone, he talks to the... The tower and calls in his call uh, signals and gets information from the tower, and uh, then he hangs up his his microphone and he uh, he goes around and, and he said just a minute and he shuts the door and he goes around the back and he puts his shoulder against the the wing of the plane and he starts to push it down the runway. And and I watch this this thing go on for a while and, I, and and I finally I stick my head out the window and I say hey hey John what are you doing? So I'm teaching you how to fly. I said, what, what, you, uh, wait, what, you know, there's that thing up in the front. I don't know much about flying, but I know there's this thing that goes around up in the front, and there's an engine up there, and there's a button there that makes it makes it start up. And uh, I think that's how you fly. I don't think you have to push this thing down the runway. And John says, really? He said, I've been pushing this thing up and down the runway for years. <clears throat> and I've often always wondered why I got so tired. I'd come home just exhausted. And Mimi would say, what have you been doing? He said, I've been flying all day. And let's say, John, John, all you have to do is start the engine and the propeller goes around. You pull back, you know, and the, the thing flies. The, the power is, is up there in the front end. You don't have to push this thing around. And you see, that that's what the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to tell us to do. Get in the seat, buckle the thing up, turn the power on, and enjoy the ride. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That's what, that's what puts the fizz in the Pepsi. That's what makes the Christian life work. That's what gets us off the ground. That's when things begin to get exciting. Now it's not that we don't suffer and struggle and we have a hard time and things go wrong and, and, and sometimes we really hurt. That's just a part of the process. But, but underneath is this sense of reliance upon God. We have entered in to rest. Now, what, what is it that keeps us from entering into rest? Well, the writer tells us. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. Israel came to Kadesh, and they didn't think God could take care of them. As, as a matter of fact, their unbelief began as soon as they crossed the, 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 uh, the Red Sea, as I pointed out last week. They got on the other side, and they ran out of water, and they began to complain. Because they didn't think God could provide water. And then uh, they ran out of food, and they began to complain because they didn't think God could provide food. And they came to Kadesh, and and they turned back because they didn't think God could defeat the giants. See, bottom line, the reason we don't rest is because we really don't trust God. We don't trust His love. We don't trust His power. We think we have to do something to help Him out. That's why we spend those long, restless sleepless nights, tossing and turning, scheming, conniving, trying to think things through for ourselves, trying to work everything out, worried about our growth in grace, worried about our children, worried about our financial condition, worried about what our spouses are doing, the direction they're going, fear that they're going to trash our family and and our well-being, and worried and anxious and uptight. We haven't entered into rest because we don't believe. That God is able, and that God cares, and that he can genuinely, that that he can do something about our our situation. The Pharisees once asked Jesus, what should we do to work the works of God? That was their hang-up. They always wanted to do something to work the works of God. And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God. That you keep on believing in Him whom He has sent. Now, if we were answering the Pharisees and, and, and they say, "What shall we do to work the works of God?" we would say, "Well, you have to memorize more Scripture. You have to read the Bible more. You need to discipline yourself a little better. You need to get up early in the morning and real. In fact, the earlier you get up, the better off it is. The more it hurts, the better it feels, and the more progress you make." Have to be on lots of committees, have to go to church all the time. nothing wrong particularly about any of those things. But that's not how you grow. That's not how you make things happen in your Christian life. All of those things, every activity that we're involved in, ought to lead us to dependence in Christ. How audacious of us to think that we can do the works of God. Only God can do the works of God. And he can only do them through us. As we believe him, Jesus' angriest words were directed at the Pharisees, who burdened people with laws and regulations and rules and add-ons and things that they had to do in order to get on with their with their relationship with with God. It, it enraged the Lord that people would do that to His, that anyone would do that to His to His uh, uh, to His people. He said, "Shame on you, Pharisees!" You. You burden my people with all your rules, and you don't, you don't use one finger to lift their burdens. Legalism is a, is a terrible thing, and it's a terrible thing to lay laws on people and tell them you should, you must, you have to, you've got to. If you don't, God doesn't love you anymore, and it's just simply not true. We are forgiven. We are approved. We are loved by God. He has given us Everything that there is to enjoy in the Christian life all we have to do is enter in now again because I don't want you to misunderstand this does not mean inactivity it doesn't mean we kick back and do nothing we have to choose we have to follow through but it is God who is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure and that's what takes the strain and the anxiety out of living the Christian life uh... One illustration, one more illustration, and then I am through. Would you turn to Luke 10, please? This is the story, verse 38 and following. This is the story of Mary and Martha. Whenever I read the story, I always think of uh, that old song. There's no one one in the kitchen uh, with Dinah. This is no one in the kitchen with Martha here. Uh, Jesus came to Mary and Martha's house, and their house was totally acceptable to him. I'm sure their house was like anybody else's house. There were you know, maybe kids' clothes strewn around the place, and pillows out of kilter, and the place wasn't particularly tidy. Martha was real concerned about that. Uh, The Lord answered, You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha was busy serving the Lord. The Lord said, Martha, uh, reminds me of an old Landers column I read once about a woman that was busy serving and running around the house trying to do things and, and, and missed the whole point of marriage which is the relationship. Mar- Martha, I just want you to understand that I want you to settle down and rest the way Mary is resting and enjoy me and trust me and listen to my words and let me handle things. Can I read one psalm in closing? Psalm 127. You don't need to turn there, just just listen to these words. This is Solomon's psalm, one of his psalms. I think he must have written it uh, when he was facing some construction deadline on the temple. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stands guard in vain. Who's building? Well, builders labor, but it's God who builds the house. Who's watching? Watchmen watch. But ultimately it's the Lord who watches over the city. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. That's the strain of self-effort. That's the anxiety that comes from feeling that it all depends upon me. And here's the punchline. It's vain to rise up early and stay up late toiling for food to eat because He gives to those He loves while they sleep. It dawned on me one day when I read through that psalm that there's something very significant about the fact that Israel's day began with sundown. Here in the West, our day begins with sunup. We hit the floor running at six o'clock or five o'clock in the morning and we run all day and we feel I deserve a little bit of rest because I've been working hard all day and we tumble in the sack at night. We get our rest on the other end. Jews started out with rest and I think there's something highly significant in that fact that they worked out of rest. He gives while they sleep. So um, the next time you have an anxious night and you can't sleep, we well, just remember that he's working on your behalf. He's already done everything that has to be done. You're fighting a battle that's already won. You're Living a life that's that's already been given to you, everything that God intends for you to have is already yours. You just have to keep entering into more and more of what is already given, and then just shut your eyes and go to sleep and know that while you're sleeping, He's at work. Boy, what a relief that is! Let's pray, Lord. We um, we live such harried anxiety-ridden lives because we feel that everything depends upon us. We think uh, that if a thing is to be done, we have to do it, or it won't get done, or if it's going to be done right, we have to do it. That's one of those lies, Lord, that paralyzes us, that keeps us distracted doing all the wrong things. Frantically trying to work things out our own way, rather than resting in your ability. Help us to realize that, that we have a Sabbath that we can keep 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days out of the year. We can rest every day because of your work. Lord give us the tranquility and the quietness of heart the restful peaceful spirits that are a reflection of that of that attitude we would like for people to to see that peace that we possess and thus to be drawn into the peace that you give help us to reflect it wherever we go thank you for this reminder again that you're at work In us, both to will and to do for your good purpose. Help us to rest in that truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.